0: Theology and apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. One Kings chapter six. Let's pray and then we're open the word of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time. Now we get to look into the the great truths of your word, Lord. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would take us into the deep things of your word tonight, Lord God. That you would encourage us, edify us, Lord, that we would live out your word in our lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 6. Now last week, if you remember, we had a lot of fun last week. I had a lot of fun last week, so just probably say it like that. I had a lot of fun last week. We were in 1 Kings chapter 5, where we were looking at the preparation for the temple. And with the way we looked at this was we talked about the typology. For those that weren't here, when I say typology, I'm talking about these sort of prophetic foreshadows that we get in the scripture that teach us something deeper, usually about a future meaning. And we talked about how both David and Solomon in their kingly roles are types of Jesus Christ. So we saw David, didn't we, that he was the man of war, he won the victories. And when we saw that Solomon's reign of peace was only possible by the victories that David won. And we applied that to the Messiah. Obviously, to our lives personally, we only have peace with God because of the victories that Christ won for us. In the future reign, in the eschaton, the millennial kingdom, the future peaceful reign of Christ... That can only be accomplished after the day of the Lord, when Christ comes in judgment. So you see that same type all through the scripture. We're going to see more of that sort of thing today as we go through this. These next two chapters, we're doing six and seven tonight, these deal with building, uh, really finishing the temple and the contents, the furniture that we find in the temple. So we're going to do two chapters. Quite a lot of reading for me. We're not going to go verse by verse. We're kind of going to go chunk by chunk, if I can say that. So before we get into this though, let me just highlight something else that I found quite fascinating as I was looking at this. We're looking at the reign of Solomon now, but obviously his father David still sort of looms large in the background for much of this because he was the one who had the the vision to build the temple and did much of the preparation. And as I was thinking about this, what are David's two biggest sins? David, he was a man after God's own heart, but he made some real serious errors in the Bible that we have recorded for us. Two biggest sins recorded for in Scripture, numbering the people. Remember when he numbered the people and the Lord took him to task for that. And the second one, obviously, that starry night on the rooftop with with Bathsheba. Now, as a result of David numbering the people, you read in 2 Samuel, David ended up I mean, obviously for various reasons, but he ended up, uh, he wanted to build an altar to the Lord to say he was sorry and he ended up buying a threshing floor on Mount Moriah. Okay, That was the consequence of his first greatest sin. And obviously the consequence of his second greatest sin, obviously he married Bathsheba and they had a son called Solomon. Okay, So the consequence of two, David's two greatest sins were a piece of property and a son. And it's upon this piece of property, if you don't know, the temple is built on the top of Mount Moriah. And it was built, obviously, by Solomon. So with the consequences of those two greater sins, God took those things and he built the temple of God. And I find that just so encouraging as a lesson for us to- today. You see, because the temple of God is, you could say, it is the focal point of the entire Bible. Uh, obviously we know Jesus is, but obviously Jesus operates through his roles as prophet, priest and king. These are temp- that's temple language, these are temple ministries that we're seeing here. We know from the temple all the way back to the tabernacle, it's always been God's desire to come and dwell with man. That's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden when he came to walk with them. Sin ruined that. The tabernacle was instituted where God would dwell in the Shekinah. The temple was then instituted. And then we move on into the New Testament period and we looked at these passages last week where God now says that you individually, Christians, you are priests and kings and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and corporately as a church we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And one day in the future we will look up, we can look and see where the temple motifs go. The temple is central. To the Bible. And I think it's just amazing that it was found, the first thing we see about Solomon and his temple, that it came from two of David's biggest mistakes. Now, I don't say that to give us license. I hope you understand that, obviously. Um, doesn't mean that we can sin and God will just make it all okay. But what it does show me is that God is a grace, graceful God. If you think of Romans 5, um, verse 20, remember where it says, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Through these sorts of sins, God can show the abundance of his grace to mankind. So as we sort of enter into this passage now, where we're going to see a lot of details that are very sort of descriptive, that quite often we read them and we think, you know, what am I supposed to do with that in a modern 21st century application? It's a curiosity of the Old Testament. I just want to remind you that every single jot and tittle of the word of God is there by divine design. There's nothing in here by accident, you see. So we can get something from every single part of it, and we're going to hopefully do that today as we go through. Let's read verses 1 to 10 together, then I'll make some comment. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And as for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house he made windows with artistic frames, and against the wall of the house he built stories, encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits wide and the middle was six cubits wide and the third was seven cubits wide. For on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. The house, while it was being prepared, was built of stone prepared at the quarry and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house And they would go up by winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. And he also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. So you see what I mean about, obviously, we're getting great sort of descriptive detail. That is quite easy to maybe brush over these details try and get a picture in your head of what it's like. And in in many sense, a lot of them are historical details, and I'm hoping we can maybe bring a little bit more out from this. So there were four, I'm going to summarise most of this for you, there were four main areas to the temple. And the first one that it mentions is the porch. The porch. Now, you may be familiar with this from the New Testament. In New Testament times, obviously it was a sort of rebuilt uh, area, but it was called the portico of Solomon. Do you remember that in the New Testament? Uh, It had kind of was the, uh, the arena for a number of significant events in the life of Jesus Christ and it marked the eastern boundary line of the temple complex um, behind that you had this big the Kidron Valley which was this big valley so you couldn't go out any further that way and Herod when he rebuilt the temple the second temple um, he allowed the builders to use the original wall that he found there and not, they were not allowed to alter it. They were allowed to expand in the other directions, but they couldn't expand east because of the Kidron Valley. So they, so they built at the, you know, the same place. If you read Josephus, and I, I mention Josephus a lot. If any of you are interested in the historical details of the Gospel and the reliability of the Scriptures, I would say that Josephus is actually recommended reading. If you read The War of the Jews, The Antiquities of the Jews, this was a first-century Roman historian who was Jewish but ended up working for the Romans, meticulous in his details. And he writes about all the background and the history to the destruction of the Temple. He writes about John the Baptist, James, the brother of Jesus. He mentions Jesus in his historical writings as well. Um, just fascinating. Let me read to you one one little uh, portion from War of the Jews, book 5. Josephus writes this, he says, Now this temple, as I have already said, was built upon a strong hill. At first the plain at the top was hardly sufficient for the holy house and the altar, for the ground about it was uneven and like a precipice. But when King Solomon, who was the person that built the temple, had built a wall to it on the east side, there was then added one cloister found on a bank cast up for it, and on the other parts the holy house stood. And he goes on to describe the portico of Solomon. But I, I emphasise that because he mentions here that it was this same wall on the eastern side that what King Solomon built, and this is where we find the portico of Solomon. If you look at a, a, a map of the temple from the Second Temple period, you remember it was in this area of the temple that the uh, the Jews confronted Jesus on the Feast of Dedication. You know, he says, "How, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are Je- if you are the Christ, tell us plainly." Um, and Jesus goes on with that great. You know, I am the light of the world uh, teaching that he does there that all happened in the portico in the porch here that Solomon originally built and was expanded by Herod that's the first part of the temple the second part is called the nave in my translation Um, NASB is quite a literal translation you might have something else in your Bibles this is really referring to the main part of the temple the main house this is where you would have the altar of incense these big lampstands that we find we'll talk more about them then you have the Inner Sanctuary. That was like the final the third third part, the Inner Sanctuary. This is what we refer to as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies It's the most intimate part of the temple. Uh, remember, no one was allowed into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest and only once after extreme ritual, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, it also mentions one other area. It mentions this little part. The temple was surrounded by side chambers, and if you picked up that in the text, it says that there were, there were chambers all around, these sort of three-storey, I, I picture them almost like, I guess, cupboards, sort of three-storey cupboards all around the temple area. Now, these are very interesting. I want to tra- track these down a little bit with you, because what appears initially as just a sort of significant detail, the, the purpose of them was obviously very practical. It seems to be that they were just for storage for the priests. I almost pictured a little bit like, you know, you go... Uh, to a swimming pool and you, you, know, you change your room and you've got your lockers. I mean, it seems to be a little bit like that. They were, the priests would obviously put them, maybe their garments where they change into their priestly clothes, those sorts of things. If you track down this in the scripture, you'll find that a little bit later in Israel's reign, when they were <laughs> suffering or soon to suffer the judgment of God, there's a story in Ezekiel chapter 8, I believe, and a few other places in 1 and 2 Chronicles, where we learn that the priests were actually using these chambers to hide their idols. Okay, so think about this for a moment. These were priests, these were Levites, serving God. They would be coming into the temple, going through the motions, walking through the doors sacrificing, washing themselves, offering sacrifices, all the sort of regalia that they had to wear. They would be doing all of this, but secretly around the sides of this temple they would be hiding their idols in these little chambers. And that's one of the reasons, given, why Israel fell and the whole temple had to be cleansed and all these sorts of things. But I think there's a lesson for us today. If we go back to what we learned from the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians, where he says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit... A temple is almost like a blueprint for for us today. This is instructive. You see, I think we can learn a lot if we ask ourselves today, what do we hide in our chambers? You know, this is not. I'm not just completely spiritualizing this. The Bible gives the the temple as a blueprint for the life of the Christian believer. And there are. Remember, King David got the designs for the temple from God, these are divine blueprints Okay, they're not, he didn't just come up with them himself the chambers were there so we have chambers Okay, I can guarantee you, every single one of us right now we have those secret chambers in our hearts where we hide things and just like those priests of old we have people in our churches today they walk through the doors of a church they sing worship songs with us they serve, they're on our rotors but secretly their hearts are far from God it's very easy, I'm not judging, it's very easy to fall into those situations. The priests here did it, the Levites did it. It starts when we hide those things in our hearts. This is things that we do not allow the Lord access to. And these are things we hide from our fellow believers, we don't even want, you know, the pre- I'm presuming the priests kept their own things secret in their own lockers. They didn't want to share them. Um, you, you can see how destructive that is. This is how it starts, very simple, but before you know it, Israel's in captivity and the temple is destroyed. That's a lesson for us, I believe. It's quite a sobering one when you think about that. Now, we also get the size of the temple. Uh, Cubit, I'll just say it in feet, the translation, it's about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. Now, that's not actually a particularly large building compared to buildings at the time. Many, many ancient Near Eastern kings would have built monuments far greater than that when they came to the throne to show people how great they were. But obviously, we know um, <laughs> the glory of the temple was not in its size. The glory of the temple was in where it came from. Like I said, it came. The blueprints came from God, and the glory of the temple was what it contained and what happened there. It was where God came to dwell with man upon the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat. Verse seven is also quite unique. I touched on this last week. It says that it's a very unusual sort of verse. It says again, there was no noise or hammer heard in the house. So basically, they were building this massive monument, but they were not allowed to do any work with chisels or hammers or axes or whatever in Jerusalem. So if you think about this, they had to quarry all of their stone from miles away up in the mountains. It had to be perfect before it was brought to Jerusalem. Because if it was brought to Jerusalem and it didn't fit properly, they weren't allowed to work it, they would have had to take it back and redo it again. Okay, And again, this just for me, just... It just gives us a picture of the Christian life today. You see, because remember we talked about last week how Jerusalem, we are, the Apostle Peter says that we are living stones. In 1 Peter he says we are living stones being built up into a holy temple. But the, the reign of Solomon here pictures the millennial reign of Christ. It's our future glorification when we are perfect. But right now, here, now, you could say that we are in the quarry. You see, we're being chipped away, The Lord is hammering out our rough edges. He's purifying us in many ways so that one day in the new Jerusalem we will fit perfectly because we will be glorified and we will see him as he is. You see, I hope you can just kind of glimpse how deep the typology is that we find here in the Bible. And it's amazing. You can run this down uh, so much. We'll we'll touch on a little bit more as we go through. Let's read verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So the word of the Lord comes to Solomon here. We're not told how maybe through a direct revelation to Solomon, maybe through a prophet who was serving the king at this time. It almost serves as a little interlude in the narrative here, almost like a reality check. You see, what was happening in Israel at this time was amazing. Solomon's fame was far, spread far and wide. They were now building one of their greatest temples, and obviously there was a lot of other building going on at the time. We'll talk about that in chapter 7. It would have been very easy to get carried away with the building of the temple, almost to the point of becoming proud of what you are accomplishing, what Solomon was accomplishing for God. And God comes along here by a divine revelation and he says, Remember, I'm not at all impressed with the eternal structure unless your heart is walking in obedience to me. And I think that's another very important lesson for us today. You see, we can be involved in many great works of God, we can be on missions teams and involved with church plants, we can serve on charities, we can do all these things. But if our hearts are not walking in obedience to the Lord, the Lord is not impressed by any of those things. And that's a very, again, another sobering lesson for us. You remember in Ephesians 6.6, it says, As slaves of Christ, we do the will of God from the heart. Remember, God sees the heart. He's interested in the heart motive for service. Willful obedience will be accompanied by joy in service. doesn't mean it's always joyful in the sense that it's not ever hard, but when you're doing it for that greater purpose, it's a a volitional choice that you make, that you want to serve the Lord. That only comes from the heart, a heart that is sanctified, a heart that is free from those hidden chambers and those idols following God. You see, ministry that is forced will ultimately lead to resentment. If you are feeling pressured and forced into ministry, and this happens in churches all the time, practically it's part of it, that's an area where you need to maybe watch the situation carefully. It happens to us all. I'm not putting a, a trip on anyone here. Just to be aware of it, it's very easy for the joy to be lost and the resentment to build up. And I think these things are a lesson maybe to come back to the first love. It has to be from the heart. You remember that even when serving is very, very difficult, whether it be in a church or out somewhere on the mission field, you have to come back. If you're not obedient and walking with Jesus, your service will become a heavy burden for you. Remember when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he's talking about. He wasn't saying everything is going to be really easy-peasy when you follow me. That's, That's, you know, that's a... A gospel that we do hear preached today in some circles, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying that even through the hardest times of trial, if you are obedient and willing and open to the Lord, if you're truly serving him, then you'll still be able to find joy in those circumstances. It's a willful obedience to the Lord. And in the midst of this building project, the great glory that Solomon is doing here up on the top of this mountain now, God just comes here with this reminder and he says, just remember... This is great, but if your heart's not in it, then I'm not in it. And that's a, a good warning for us today to remember as we, um, you know, as we see God's blessing and serve in the ministry. Now let's read uh, 14 to 38 together. Uh, yeah, we'll just read the whole chapter. Yep, that's a lot. I'm going to read it all. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar, From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, and he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them on it for the inside as an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house, that is the nave, in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. There was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, there was no stone seen. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place uh, there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Also in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood. Each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the one wing of the cherub and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the end of the one wing to the end of the other wing were ten cubits. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits and so was the other cherub. He placed the cherubim in the midst of the inner house and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of the one was touching the one wall and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall. So their wings were touching each other in the centre of the house. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. Then he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood, the lintel and five-sided doorposts. So he made two doors of olive wood, two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold. And he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave four-sided doorposts of olive wood and two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door on pivot turned on pivots and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. He carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the engraved work. He built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So, you can see the detail here. Solomon finished building, and it was a beautiful building. Okay, a lot of gold. <laughs> a lot of cedar wood, and remember those great cedar wood, those trees that he got from Hiram, king of Tyre, in the previous chapter. Everything was overlaid with gold. Special detail is given here to what's called the inner sanctuary. The, this was a 30-foot cube, basically, where everything from the ceiling to the floor was completely overlaid with gold. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. Now, think about this. You had this room inside this beautiful palace, this square completely overlaid with gold. Upon it you would have the Ark of the Covenant. And upon the Ark of the Covenant you would have these massive cherubs. And it says there were two 15-foot cherubim with these impressive angels sat on either side of the room and their wings would touch one end of the room to the other end of the room. It's almost hard to imagine. And it's supposed to be hard to imagine because the Holy of Holies is supposed to represent the throne room of heaven. That's the picture we're supposed to get here. For that high priest who walked into this room, that once a year, it was supposed to be like walking into the throne room of God. It's an awe-inspiring thing. And remember these cherubs, they, they are the highest angelic beings that we have. Incredibly awesome creatures. You see, in the Bible we get these very odd descriptions of them. They're almost sort of too, too majestic for language to describe, but we just can't really contemplate what they are. They're fearful things. You you know, people see angels in the scriptures and they're fearful. These things are awesome in their power. And we see here, uh, the first thing the high priest would see as he entered this room was these cherubs. They were there to guard the presence of God. The cherubs guard the presence of God. This is what happens in the throne room of God. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, these passages where we see glimpses of the throne room, there's always cherubs and seraphs guarding the throne room of God. And also we get this little verse that says he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. So in front of the Holy of Holies there were these chains of gold that were sort of chained up like, you know, no entry sort of thing across the front of the sanctuary. And if you read the parallel to this in Second Chronicles you'll realise that behind these chains was the veil of purple. Says Second Chronicles 3 says he made the veil of violet, purple, crimson and fine linen and he worked cherubim Onto the veil, Second Chronicles three fourteen. This is the, the parallel passage. Very, very significant. He seems to be emphasising here that the Holy of Holies was not accessible. Okay, had this massive, thick veil in front of it. In front of that veil, you had these chains of gold. You were not allowed to approach the throne of God. Okay, This was a serious thing here. And like I said, it was designed to obviously represent the throne room in heaven. Now let me look a little bit deeper at this veil. I find it, again, just fascinating here. You notice on the veil, not only were there these massive cherubim inside the Holy of Holies, on this veil, it was covered by embroidered cherubs. You see, what were they doing? They were guarding the way to God. Now what does this remind us of? You remember all the way back in Genesis... All the way back in Genesis, when man first sinned, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, verse 24. He drove man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the Tree of Life. After that happened, the way to God, the Tree of Life representative of that at this stage, had to be guarded by cherubim. That is why we see cherubim on the veil of the temple, They were still there doing their work, symbolically, obviously, on the veil, representing that the way to God was marred by sin. and Something needed to happen. This is why it's so significant. You remember when Jesus is crucified everything goes black, the earthquake happens, and it says the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is that veil that it's talking about here, this massive thick veil covered in the cherubim, guarding the way to the entrance of God. The point of that is so very significant because it's signifying now that with the death of Christ, that final high priestly sacrifice, the way to God is finally open. The cherubim can be removed. They no longer need to guard the way to the tree of life. That's why you have this little detail that the veil has been torn. The cherubim are finally removed. And then what do we have in the book of Hebrews? It says, we now come boldly to the throne of God through Jesus Christ, who overwhelmingly conquered. The veil is torn. Let's move on into chapter 7. Let's read the first verses, verses 1 to 12. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was pan- I'm going to be dreaming about cubits tonight when I go to sleep. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers with which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows and windows were opposite windows in three ranks. All the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames and the window was opposite window in three ranks. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 30 cubits, and a porch was in front of them and pillars and a threshold in front of them. Uh, He made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was panelled with cedar from floor to floor. His house where he was to live, the the other court inward from the hall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this for the hall of Pharaoh's daughter whom Solomon married." All these were of costly stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws inside and outside, even from the foundation to the copping, and so on, the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits, stones of eight cubits, and above were costly stones, stone cut according to measure and cedar. So the great court all around had three rows of cut stones and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. So again... Huge amount of detail were being given here about these building projects. We learn of these other building projects. Now, a lot of commentators uh, that I read, they make a big point at this issue. I think they're a little unkind to Solomon here. They say immediately, look, he only spent seven years building the temple of God, but he spent 13 years building his own house. Doesn't that show you what an arrogant man this guy was at this stage? He obviously considered himself to be greater than God. And I assume they're obviously with their knowledge of the later life of Solomon, they're sort of With that knowledge, they're kind of backtracking and placing that onto him here. Or they're saying, isn't this maybe an indication that he was starting to get prideful? Maybe, but I prefer to be sort of generous at this stage. I don't think that's the situation quite yet. I think what we're seeing here is that Solomon was actually taking so long on his own house... Because all of his efforts at this stage were really focused on building the temple of God, and he even says that in the Book of Kings. It says that he was completely focused on building the Temple of God. And remember, all the preparations were already done for him. David obviously collected most of the materials, so it wouldn't have taken as long. But he built his own his own house. He built this amazing thing called the the forest, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Okay, this was this a massive sort of cedar. Uh, hall of judgment where you'd have these 45 pillars of the cedar wood we know from second kings that there were these gold sh- you know these gold shields 500 of them all around the walls of this place it was obviously quite an impressive building um, and this was a hall of judgment and i again I, I think at this stage in solomon's life we're still giving he's still giving us that picture of the ultimate coming in the reign of messiah Okay, Because remember, it's not just the temple, it's the entire palace complex. When Christ is here and he's ruling, yes, he'll have that temple complex. But it also says that he will sit from Jerusalem and he will render judgment on the nations. He will, he will make decisions. People will come to him for wisdom, for guidance. Out of Jerusalem will go forth the law. We read it last, last week, didn't we? It points forward to that time when the Messiah will judge the nations with righteousness. A hall of judgment was built here by Solomon. Let's read 13 to 22, and we'll kind of finish up this chapter because there's huge amounts of details in here. I'm sorry, there's a lot of my voice just reading tonight. And then I'll go through and I'll kind of focus on a few, just a few areas that I want to do for this later. 13 to 22. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals which were on the top of the pillars. Seven for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows around one on the one network to cover the capitals which were on the top of the pomegranates. And so he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars, even above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Yakin, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. And on top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. Again. Huge amounts of detail. Uh, it's quite easy to get lost in these details. But we learn here that he, came, he called a man called Hiram. This is not Hiram of the previous chapter, who was the king of Tyre. This is Hiram, who's a sort of half-Jewish, half Tyrian person, who was a very skilled worker in bronze. And the main really thing that we focus on in this text is he builds these two massive pillars these 18-foot round pillars of pure bronze. He decorates them with pomegranates and lilies and all sorts of flowers and things at the top. And again, this is interesting because pomegranates... Everyone knows Everyone knows a pomegranate, right? You Can, picture, can you picture a pomegranate in your head if I said to it right now? Yeah? Okay, some of you don't have a clue. <laughs> it's a biblical fruit, you all need to know it. Pomegranates. These... Show up at very unusual times throughout the Bible. In the book of Exodus, the priests were instructed to put pomegranates on the robe of their garments, in between bells. So you'd have a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate, all around the hems of their garments. Very unusual sort of detail. You find them on the tem- around the sort of the edge of the tabernacle and on the temple. Um, you find them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. A pomegranate is listed as one of the seven fruits of Israel that the spies saw when they spied out the land. Uh, pomegranates are eaten on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. They symbolize fertility and fruitfulness because they have, like, they're just full of seeds, basically. It's all they are. Um, often you'll see, even today, a Jewish, like a Torah scroll, when they, they take them up on the Temple Mount, and dance around them and things like that. The tops of those things are, are pomegranates, often on the top of those Torah scrolls. Uh, and interestingly, the Jewish scholars believe that it was in fact a pomegranate that was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and it takes you right back, sort of, to the Garden of Eden, which is kind of what we're talking about here. Um, and it's also said that Solomon. Have you you've seen the top of a pomegranate? It looks like a crown, right? It's also said in Jewish tradition that Solomon got his, uh, his the shape of his crown from the top of a pomegranate, and oh, that's actually the shape of crowns moving into sort of. Byzantine Empire and Christian history as well. The same sort of idea at the top of a pomegranate. I find that very interesting. But he had these two pillars. And they were put at the porch before entering the temple. And they're not attached to anything. There's no structural purpose to these pillars. That's the important thing to mention. But there's a big spiritual purpose to them. And this is seen in the names. Obviously, Jewish tradition names are very important. Yakin and Boaz. So Yakin was the pillar on the right. And that word means he will establish. The pillar on the left was called Boaz, and that means in him is strength. Obviously Hebrew reads from right to left, Uh, a lot of Semitic languages do. So as you enter that temple, these two pillars, they form a sentence with their names. Reading from right to left, he will establish, in him is strength. Now think about what this is symbolising. You see, every time one of these priests entered the house of God, they had to pass by these two massive pillars. that they, they knew were only there because of their names. They were there for a spiritual purpose, a perpetual reminder that it is all God's work. You see, I think this is just fascinating that they have these. Um, there's a lot of lessons. I think maybe in the church we could benefit from pillars like this sometimes, not a, maybe at the doorpost of our building, but at the doorpost of our heart, you know, symbolically speaking, before we engage in spiritual activities, we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of ministry That it's so easy to do, we need to remember that we have to do it in his strength. And he will establish it if it's done in his strength. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We find our strength in him. And I think it's no coincidence in the, the epistle of 1 Peter. If you don't know, the epistle of 1 Peter is just sort of dripping with temple language. It's where we're described as living stones, as a holy priesthood. All these sort of things come out in this letter. We have to understand just how central the temple was to the first century apostles. Their whole life revolved around this thing. And yes, they now understood that it was a bigger and and there was a more uh, sort of Christological purpose to it. But this was, until it was destroyed, this was still their central meeting place. But in this epistle of 1 Peter 5, he he writes this... That we read last week you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ and then at the end of this epistle he writes this the god of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in christ will himself perfect comfort strengthen and establish you in effect he's saying yakin and boez you And I believe that he's making an allusion there. Because of all his other temple allusions, he's making an allusion back to these two pillars that would have been so prominent in the thoughts and minds of any Jewish people at that time. These two pillars, as we work for God, we need to realise it's his work done by his strength and he will establish it. Let's read verses 23 to 26. Now he made the sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits. And thirty cubits in circumference, under its brim girds went around, encircling it ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. And the girds were in two rows, cast with the rest. It stood on—sorry—it uh, stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom. It could hold two thousand. Baths. Here we have this massive cast C described. It's a huge bath, basically, sort of placed upon the back of twelve bronze oxens. Again, must have been a very impressive sight. You have these three oxens, each three facing the direction of the compass. Most people believe that they were actually ta- They functioned like taps. Rather than having to climb up and sort of ladle out water from the leather for, for filling up the smaller basins around the edge, these bulls probably had some sort of system that would take the water out. Um, again, impressive uh, bronze work there by Hiram, this man who was skilled in all bronze. 27 to 39. Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits and width four cubits and its height three, cub- uh, three cubits. This was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders which were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above and beneath the lions and the oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Notice there are wreaths here. So next time at Christmas someone comes up to you and says you can't hang wreaths on your door because they're pagan fertility symbols you can trump them and say, no, no, I'm basing it on the design from Solomon's temple. And that's it. Done. Argument closed down. and go home. Verse thirty. Now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports beneath the basin where cast supports were uh, with wreaths at each side. Its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit, and its opening was round like the design of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. And also on its opening there were engravings, and their borders were square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. Now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. On top of the stand there was a circular form, half a cubit high, and on top of the stand it stays, and its borders were part of it. He engraved on the plates Uh, on the plates of its stays and on its borders, cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the clear space on each with wreaths all around. He made the ten stands like this. All of them had one casting, uh, one measure and one form. He made ten basins of bronze. One basin held 40 baths. Each basin was four cubits. And on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he set the stands, five on the side of the house and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house, eastward towards the south. Now... A lot of detail, and I, I'm sure you know these are the sorts of things that you read when you're doing your reading at home, and it makes you fall behind on your Bible reading plan, and you never catch up for the rest of the year. <laughs> Everyone know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. I don't do Bible reading plans precisely because of that, um, but. There is some details that we can pull out here. Um, these are basically 10 portable washing things that it's describing. You had the massive one on the oxen, but obviously practically they had these 10 littler ones that they would set up all around, uh, all around the temple for, for rinsing sacrifices and doing all sorts of ceremonial work. You know what, let's just finish, I'm just going to finish the chapter and then I won't have to read any more. And then we'll, we'll make some comments and we've, we've gone through all the text then so we can congratulate ourselves on that. And then I'll make some sort of f- final analogies some things that I want to draw out on this last section. So let's just read the last 10 verses. Verse 40. Now Hiram made the basins and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. And two pillars... "...the two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals, which are on the top of the two pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the capitals, which are on the top of the pillars." and the four hundred pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals which are on tops of the pillars, and the ten stands with the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pails and the shovels and the bowls, even all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of the Lord were of polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zatharah. Solomon left all the utensils unweighed, because they were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. Solomon made all the furniture which... Was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, on which was the bread of the presence, and the lampstands, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, of pure gold, and the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, and the cups, the snuffers, the bowls, the spoons, the firepans of pure gold, and the hinges, both of the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave, of gold." Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasures of the house of the Lord. Even the hinges were made of gold. The nails and the hinges, everything was made of gold in the Holy of Holies. Now, basically this is a description of all these other utensils that we find Lampstands, snuffers, very, very practical things. Uh, We also get mentioned the golden altar. The golden altar and these, the bigger lampstands that are more important. But let, uh, rather than go through all the specific details, let me just come back now and let's look again at the temple as a model of the Christian life and the temple as being fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. So if you imagine you are that worshipper, that Israelite, you enter the outer courtyard of that temple and you are confronted with the large brazen altar, the bronze altar. This is the, this is the thing that had a perpetual fire burning beneath it, where animals, that would smell of flesh, there was blood all around it. This was the place of sacrifice. That's the first thing you meet. Okay, There's, there's no going any further unless you were to pass through that. And we all understand this in the Christian life. You know, The Christian life does not begin until you come to the cross, which is the place, the ultimate sacrifice, the place of sacrifice, where Jesus, as high priest, offered himself as the only sacrifice. This is what this is sort of pointing us towards in the temple here. You do not go further unless you've come to the brazen altar. But if you do take that step, you come to Christ, you go past that brazen altar, the next thing that you would see in the temple courtyard was this massive lather. This thing supported on the back of these 12 oxen, this huge bowl of water. Now, water is obviously very significant uh, in the Bible. Um, we know that it symbolizes the Word of God. It symbolizes the Holy Spirit in many places. Uh, in Ephesians it says that we are washed with the water of the word. It speaks of our sanctification, it speaks in titus of our washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. All of these things happen after you become a Christian. If you become a Christian. By coming through the altar, and then the Lord starts to work in your life. The Holy Spirit will come and indwell you, and He will start to sanctify you. You will be uh, washed with the water of the Word. You will cleanse yourself by feeding on the Word of God. This is what happens with the Christian. So this is the next step. It's a very good, like I say, blueprint of the Christian of the Christian life. And then we move into the temple, remembering again that we walk past those massive pillars that give us that little reminder of that we stand only by his grace. Uh, it's the only reason we're allowed into this complex at all. We move into the temple and we see, as described here, these ten golden lampstands. And of course these ten golden lampstands and then the altar of incense at the end of them and the table of showbreads, these ten tables in fact actually, one in front of every lampstand. Now, lampstands, these were there to give light to the tabernacle so that the priests could perform their duties. Without them, it probably would have been uh, almost impossible to do that. The picture here is obviously very, very clear and obvious to us. It says, doesn't it, what did Jesus call himself at the Feast of Dedication that time? During the ceremony of lights, he came and he said, I am the light of the world. Just as the priests needed him to perform their priestly duties, we as priests today need Jesus that we can see where he wants us to perform our priestly duties, our spiritual sacrifice and service that we offer to him. We have to be following his leading. It's very tempting to follow our own leading on this or to get confused by all the other littler lights that we see around the world, the more dazzling ones. Remember Satan, what does Satan It says He transforms himself into an angel of light in order to deceive that's why he does that. Because there is one great light and there is a deceptive light. It's very easy. You know, this is why, how do you know the true from the false? Well, you go back, you go back one step to that laver just outside through the Word of God. Okay, that's how we know the true from the false. The Word of God tells us these things. Jesus is the light of the world. We follow Him as we serve God and live in this world. But yet, there's more than that to this. The Bible also says that we are the light of the world, because remember, when we get joined to the body of Christ, we get joined to this unity of this this body. Yeah, He is the head; we are the body. So He is the light; we are also the light, and we are supposed to shine. Another thing we learn from these menorahs is that they didn't actually give. It's not like they were electric; they had to be filled with oil, and they had a wick in them, and it was the oil that was actually giving the light. And again, very good picture of us for the Christian. We follow the great light, but in order to be lights, we need to be filled with oil that has to burn brightly. Okay, I hope you will see where I'm going with this. The oil is obviously a picture of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Remember we said, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in Zechariah. You see, it's another reminder that as priests, we work only by the power of the Spirit of God. And then briefly, we have the table of showbread, you may have it written as the table of the bread of presence. And this was eaten by the priests. Every Sabbath day, they'd, take this, they'd eat this bread. And again, I, I believe this is pointing us back right back to the, the Exodus wanderings where they were fed supernaturally with manna from heaven. And Jesus said, you know, not, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We see Jesus quote that in Matthew 4.4. 4. And then in John chapter 6, what do we see Jesus call himself? He says, I am the bread of life. Okay. So all of those I am statements, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, these are all temple things that he's saying here. You know, They're not just random statements of nice bread and nice light. That we, you know, he's talking about things from the temple, and that's why the teaching here is, is so uh, temple-orientated. Then we have the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense is funny. There was frankincense that was burned on the altar of incense. Uh, it was to be continually burning. In the, inside the temple. Incense is often spoken of as being symbolic of the prayers of the saints. It symbolises that communion that you have with God. Unless you've been through all the other things, you're not going to have communion with God. Jesus says that his house shall be a house of prayer for all nations in the book of Mark. Now, the thing I want to just highlight for you before we finish for that is the positioning of this altar. It was right at the very end of the temple, right between those gold chains and that veil, So you had the veil, the gold chains, the altar of incense, the lampstands, and the entrance over here. And I think that's significant, because you could say that the first half of the temple represents the life of the believer in his earthly experience. Serving, walking with the Lord, following the light. The back end of the temple, that holy of holies, that's our position only by virtue of being raised with Christ. It's one that we have positionally, but we don't actually enter into at this stage, if you see what I mean through the altar of incense we do have access to it because if you think all that incense would have been burning and it would have been wafting behind the veil into the Holy of Holies it was only that incense that could really get behind there and this is think of that as prayer it's prayer that brings you into the throne room of God to commune with him and it's sort of prayer is where you get that touching between heaven and earth at this point prayer brings us into the presence of God Let me read to you just how Matthew Henry sums up his commentary on this section in 1 Kings. He ends it with this quote. He says, Christ is now the temple and the builder, the altar and the sacrifice, the light of our souls and the bread of life, able to supply all the wants of all that have applied or shall apply to him. Outward images cannot represent, words cannot express, the heart cannot conceive his preciousness or his love. Let us come to him and wash away our sins in his blood. Let us seek for the purifying grace of the Spirit. Let us maintain communion with the Father through his intercession and yield up ourselves and all we have to his service. Being strengthened by him, we shall be accepted, useful and happy. And I think that's just a brilliant summary of everything that we learn from this temple. And then the very last verse, which one more thing I want to pull out for you and then we're, then we're done. It says, all the work that King Solomon performed... In the house of, the, And it says, Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father, the silver, the gold, the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Everything, this is all those weird things we read, the snuffers, the, all these kind of objects, these used, what we might consider sort of mundane things. They are all described as treasure because they were all used in service of the Lord. And it says that they were all gathered up and put in the treasury of the temple. Now why do I make such a big point of this? You see, the veil is gone, the cherubim have been removed. We now as Christians have access to the Holy of Holies and we need to live in light of the Holy of Holies. We need to let our earthly life be lived as if we were in heaven in that sense, as much as we can. The treasures of the priests were kept in the temple. These are the things that would have occupied most of their life. Their whole life was based around service and using these objects, but yet they were said to be treasure. They were kept in the holy, of, in the treasury of the temple, in the throne room of God. This was supposed to represent. Now, this makes me just sort of jump to that verse of Jesus, where he says, "Do not store up for yourself treasure, uh, store up for yourselves rather treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." You say, if the things that occupy your heart are things stored in the temple, you will live a life that is obedient to the Lord, just like God told Solomon to do when he reminded him of that fact. These treasures were put in the temple. But if your heart is full of those little chambers and secret idols, like I said, and we've all got some of them, I believe, it's very easy for our heart to be turned away. And before we know it, we're not storing up treasure in heaven. We're more concerned about storing up treasure on this earth. In 1 Kings 11, we're going to learn that Solomon has his heart turned by, by his wives towards other gods. He's no longer storing up treasure in heaven at that stage. That's the decline of Solomon. But for now, at this stage, all these treasures were stored in the house of the Lord. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And let's be sure to store up treasures in the temple of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. I pray that you would uh, just put them deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would be meditating on them uh, for the rest of the week. We pray that you would be preparing our hearts, Lord, as we strengthen ourselves in you, uh, as we prepare to meet. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.